0: It's great for me. I'm an external person. I like to be around. uh, Someone told me I did 310 uh, public appearances in my first 20 months after arriving and I love that. I'm uh, chomping at the bit to get back out there and uh, spread our word and it's a good word. I want to thank Bill Moose for his previous leadership in our role as Athletics Director and for the talent that he brought here. It's my pleasure to introduce to you the 14th Athletic Director as of July 19th, Trev Albers.
1: Whether it's a team, whether it's church, any business, any organization, it is built on trust and the importance of building that trust.
2: I will never call a play. I don't tell coaches who to recruit. Uh, but I think bigger picture, some of the culture things, I think I can be helpful. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited uh, about the future of Husker football and the rest of our sports. Sam. Without a doubt, this is the most uh, excited I've been about our team, and the most confident. Part of that's talent, part of that's just the uh, character of the young man on our team and, and the culture surrounding the team. We got to go earn whatever respect we get. I'm excited for NIL. I think Nebraska is uniquely positioned to take advantage of it just because of the passion surrounding Nebraska football.
3: A developing story in
1: college sports: The Houston Chronicle reporting that Texas and Oklahoma have reached out to the SEC about joining the conference.
0: We are a committed, long-term member of being successful in the Big Ten. I
2: love this place. Um, Sorry about that. Didn't know that was going to happen. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and
1: Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, David Gaspers, and I'm with Honky. During
0: the break, Redcast Nation grew to over 14,000 followers, making us the 14th largest city in Nebraska, and watch out there, Scottsbluff. We're about to become the biggest metropolis in the entire panhandle.
1: I'm <laughs> um, also with Boomer. Well, it looks like we
4: picked a heck of a month to take off, and nice and quiet, nothing happened, so it'll be just an easy way to get back into podcasting and, oh, geez, what the heck happened? Oh,
1: good <laughs> lord. You shouldn't have stopped sniffing glue, Boomer. That was <laughs> bad timing, really. Also with Mac. What's up,
2: Red Casters? We are back, and we are bringing to you right out of the gate a super up conversation we had with Brett Ciancia from Pick 6 Previews. Great conversation, really stoking the fires of college football right now uh, with all the crazy talk, realignment and other stuff I could care less about.
1: It's nice to talk <laughs> about football. <laughs> yeah, well, we did uh, pick a heck of a month to take off. Um, obviously, a lot of things happened in Lincoln. Um, as you heard in our intro there, the you know, change of the AD, obviously, but a lot of things have happened over the last couple of weeks uh NIL uh in early July. Now we have conference realignment happening. Um just some crazy stuff. But it was a lot of fun, honky, just to talk to Brett ciancia And it was cool to have all of us on the call this year.
0: Yeah, and I hope he enjoyed that too. I mean we have Redcast Rob on the call with us as well during it. So uh you know he got pretty much the full Redcast, but some great discussions there and Boomer and him had a really nice little back and forth with the uh college football playoff expansion. Some good discussions. It's been great that we were able to take the break, and this is the first show of season six of the RedCast, and we're excited to get going. And to Max' point, let's talk some football and let's get into it. But wow, what a weird time we t- we took that those five weeks off because we we're like we need a break. What the heck is going to happen during that time, anyways? It's summer, yeah. and ads are leaving, and ads are being hired, and in- between NIL and now conference realignment, Ugh, this is what we're coming back to. But uh, the one thing that remains constant, uh, Redcasters, is that. There's football. We're going to play it. We can't wait. Rob and uh, Mac and I are going to be just over a month from now I know, heading to Champaign and uh, for week zero football. So Dave, that excites me no matter what the craziness off the field is, is happening.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, we're glad to be back. I think we have a great episode for our listeners and uh, next week we'll be diving in um, to, you know, fall camp. So uh, there'll be a lot to look forward to over the next month leading up to that August 28th game. For now, let's listen to our interview with Brett Ciancia of Pick 6 Previews.
0: We welcome back to the Redcast Brett Ciancia of Pick 6 Previews. Brett is in his 10th year now doing Pick 6 and his publication has been rated the most accurate in the nation by stassen.com. He's also on the Football Writers Association of America All-American Committee along with being a Heisman voter. Redcasters, we urge you to go out and download a digital copy of your own from his website, picksixpreviews.com. It's great to talk with you again, Brett.
5: Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. The third annual season preview with you guys on the show. It's one of my favorite stops on my my radio podcast tour every year. I'm not just saying that. It's one of the ones that I do tune into during the season and and check back when I'm researching. So, uh, you know, keep up the excellent work on on this side. Now, it's fun tonight. Usually it's just Mac and hockey, but I get the full crew, the whole cast. So, uh, thanks for welcoming me in.
0: Yeah, that's right. We have uh, Boomer with us here. We even have Redcast Rob listening in. We're doing this one over Zoom as opposed to in the past how we did it. And uh, we also have Dave, who's on mute because there are some screaming kids in the background. So, uh, hey, you know, uh, it's real life. You don't want to hear this, (laughs) (laughs) honky. This is real life, right? Well, uh, Brett, catch us up with how did your 2020 preview go? And uh, I guess that will kind of lead us into the 2021 preview.
5: Yeah, so 2020 was a great year for me. Um, I actually ended up number one overall in FBS uh, in terms of prediction accuracy. And that's not just me saying it. There's a a site, Stassen.com, that's been tracking all the preseason publications for the last 30, 40 years uh, with their formula. And uh, yeah, so 2020, I was number one in FBS, uh, specifically number one in the ACC and SEC. You know, I did have Florida winning the SEC East. I went that far correctly. I actually, I did have them beating Alabama. That was a step too far. Um, they didn't have the defense to do it last year. And regrettably, you know, normally a great defensive squad. They came up short there. Some other hits, too, that were non-playoff related. I was the highest in the nation on a and coming into the year. Of course, they finished uh, near the playoff. Um, I was also the highest on Iowa State, who, um, in, in your geographic footprint, the Midwest really uh, surged up the polls and into the conference title game. So uh, those were the hits. Some of the misses. Uh, to be to be fair, I got to show some misses too. Uh, I did have Oregon in the playoff last year. I, I really thought that this was the Pac-12 strongest team in a while, and they were due for a, a playoff bid. I thought they could go, you know, eleven and one. A one-loss conference champ would make it. Um, now, obviously, their their season got wrecked with the cancellations and the opt-outs, and not that it's an excuse. You know, they they still didn't play up to up to par. So uh, that was a mess. But uh, a lot of hits. It was a good year. And then uh, I got the honor of joining the selection committee for the All-American team, like you mentioned. So that was a Mm -hmm. great honor to be on that committee. Um, Some of the best writers in the game. So uh, that was 2020.
0: Yeah. Well, and your hit on Iowa State's big. I mean, they that season has gotten people talking about the Cyclones in ways that have never been talked about before.
5: Yeah, for sure. And um, the the way I'm describing them this year, I'm calling them America's team, if you will, if you think (laughs) about it, because. In the era of you know big money, of uh, the transfer portal, of lucrative huge contracts for the coaches and coaches stepping stoning programs hopping around, they're kind of the old fashioned. They're hey Matt Campbell, he's been offered lucrative offers everywhere. He stayed committed to building a, a program here, like the old program builders of old, like a Bowden, the Paterno, or a Beamer. Uh, it's very veteran. It's all these fifth year, sixth year guys. They play traditional offense. It's not the the spread or the hu- uh, hyper tempo. It's just a smash mouth offense. And uh, so, I mean, there's a lot to like. It's kind of a throwback team against the grain of this current 2021 uh, college football era we have right now. So, and just a, a legitimate threat to break up this chalk at the top. You see all these conferences with a chalk team uh, running it. So, it, it would be great, I think. Speaking, you know, outside of the Cyclone slam base, but um, as America's team to really break through.
2: Well, speaking of being at to the top here, looking at this year's playoff predictions, you've got Oklahoma, Georgia. Ohio State and North Carolina, two of those teams, we uh we get the pleasure of playing. So uh, walk us through some of your thinking on that, uh, particularly North Carolina. That's I think that's going to be one that raises some eyebrows. Potential, yeah,
5: absolutely. Uh, and if, if any of the listeners are on Twitter, I'm sure they've seen the we'll call it feedback that I got for that UAC <laughs> pick. Um, you know, really throw the grind through the grinder there, but hey, I love it. I'm used to it after 10 years on Twitter. But yeah, so real quickly at the top, uh, Oklahoma and Georgia. Really, these, uh, these programs have been excellent on one side of the ball for a long time now. Lincoln Riley's offense, Kirby Smart's defense, those units are reloaded again, as always. But what makes them playoff caliber this year is their other sides of the ball are now up to, up to speed and, and top 20 units themselves. Where Oklahoma, they finally have the defense to pair with it. Uh, Alex Grinch's third year as the coordinator, 10 starters back, five stars everywhere, and, and really quietly played excellent defense last year, top 20 defense last year. And uh, the 10 starters on defensive back. So Oklahoma's got the D. Uh, Georgia has the offense now. Uh, they had a couple early losses when they were shifting around a walk-on quarterback and, a, and a, you know, a dual threat guy that didn't really fit. But once they landed on JT Daniels, a five-star from California, uh, really unlocked Todd Monken's vertical passing attack. And now they've kind of taken a, a page out of LSU and Alabama's playbook where they used to be smash-mouth 1980s football. Now they're this modernization, you know, the vertical passing, so they're up to speed on offense. It's a great recruiting roster as well, and they develop it well there. So those two are one and two for me. Uh, number three was Ohio State, almost by default, because I don't see any other real threat in the, in the Big Ten East this year, um, and they avoid Wisconsin and Iowa out of the West. So I think that they even go 11-1 and one and uh, win that conference title game and make it in. You know, I just got done saying I hate chalk, but in this case there really wasn't a threat there. Uh, and number four, yeah, this one is getting a ton of attention. It's UNC, the Tar Heels. Right away, I love their offense. I think that's been well documented. Uh, I, I spoke with Phil Longo, their offensive coordinator. Offensive genius, the way he's paired his air raid pass concepts on the outsides with a downhill physical run game in the middle. It's, it's great balance. It's great tempo. Heisman caliber quarterback Sam Howell, uh, an NFL-sized line with five starters back up front. But really what moved them from eight-win, nine-win range up to playoff contender or conference title contender is the the growth on defense. Uh, now, Mac Brown has stacked three top 15 classes now uh, of uh, recruiting classes, and these guys are now coming of age, first-year, second-year, third-year guys, and they played top 20 defense after their bye week as the young guys moved up the depth chart in season. So, a lot to like, a great schedule too. They only play Notre Dame out of conference, who I have as a rebuild this year, and uh, they avoid Clemson in the regular season. So, hey, I, I think they have the firepower to do it offensively for the vet casters out there they're favored in all 12 games this fall. So, uh, huh. you know, that's a little bit, even if they go 11 and one, I think it comes down to them in Clemson and Charlotte and they have the, the, the offensive firepower to do it.
0: So Brett, I got to tell you here, there's a really smart guy I know that votes in the Heisman and, you know, does some all American teams. He tweeted out once, he said, every Saban recruiting class since 2000 has won a national title. So how do we not have Alabama in that top four, especially a year after you said you didn't do them, you had, Florida in there, and it bit you then. How do you not have Alabama this year?
5: Yeah, well, for that stat to remain true, the, the 2020 class got one uh, in January. Yeah, 2021 sure class, <laughs> they have three shots. So I think they'll get one over that three-year Good span, point. according. But, but yeah, so for 2021, that's a great point because Alabama's been proven that they can reload. They reload every year. You know this. Uh, This year, I find it a little bit different where they're replacing not just one, but three Heisman candidates on offense. No other offense uh, in football history has had three candidates like that. Uh, All three are gone. Uh, Offensive coordinator Sarkeesian gone. Two All-American linemen gone up front. And then six first-round NFLers. Uh, That's an NFL draft record. I think they tied that old Miami Canes squad. So uh, just more reloading than usual. And pair that with a loaded SEC West. I mean, LSU is surging towards the top 10 again. A&M is a proven top 10 team. Ole Miss has the offense to to pull some upsets. And, uh, and of course I like Georgia too. So I think they get tagged with a loss or two and you know, there's no margin of error out there in the sec.
0: That's so funny. I mean, you just mentioned all the things are losing. They're probably 10 and two. <laughs> <laughs> I know.
5: It's just, yep. well, Heavy cause... favorites still. I'm sure
1: with North Carolina, I really appreciate you actually like, you know, trying to put some new blood in there. I was just wondering like, who else did you actually consider besides North Carolina in, and, and probably Alabama there? I, I I appreciate your analysis there. I, I think the Carolina schedule might be a little tougher than, than what you give it credit for. You know, you got Florida State, Miami back to back. Pittsburgh's notorious for beating um, title contending teams at home, and they've got them late in the season.
5: Yeah, great points all around. There, there are still two big hurdles for UNC to make that this big leap that I think they will. The two, the two things are beating the teams they're supposed to. Like I said, they're going to be favored in all 12, but can they really consistently beat the teams they're supposed to? Last year, they choked against UVA. And Florida State, they gave them a ton of points to Florida State. So, yeah, that's one concern. Can they beat everyone they should? Number two is can they complete a full quarter game against playoff caliber teams? Because they took two all the way to the woodshed uh, with Notre Dame and a They played them both tough. They were tied at halftime against Notre Dame and led late against a and but just didn't have the stamina and, and the youth and depth uh, You know, were, were glaring issues in the fourth quarter. So those are two big leaps of faith I'm making. To get back to your point about schedule, yes, uh, Miami will be tough. They did beat them 62-26 to last year. That was a pretty emphatic win. Um, you know, they, Like I said, they avoid Clemson. But for that last playoff spot was your original question, uh, who else did I consider? What I like to do in my preview book is really just pick four conference champions. I know uh, other books out there, you'll see that they have Alabama and Georgia, or in some years they would have had Ohio State and Michigan. Um, you know, just as a principle, I like seeing four conference winners. Uh, it's just more of a, like a, a normal argument to make so that like, you know, here are the five conference winners, four of these are making it rather than, you know, jump through hurdles and, and hoops and try and do like a one loss runner up scenario. So for me, it came down to who would win the ACC and, uh, Clemson and UNC are going to battle, uh, for Clemson. Yeah. I think they're going to lose right out the gate to Georgia. So that really factored into my playoff logic where with a loss to Georgia, there's zero margin of error the rest of the way. Uh, and you're going through a, quite a transition at quarterback, at running back. Their offensive line took a step back last year. And, uh, and their defense last we saw got exposed against Ohio State. So, yeah, that's a great question. Those really just came down to UNC and Clemson for me.
0: Well, you know, there's a lot of teams that we've been talking about here, the playoff teams, uh, that are blue blood programs. And something that I really like that you do every year, Brett, is you do a Twitter online poll, hundreds of thousands of, of votes that get accumulated on uh, which programs still remain blue bloods. And, and here in this part of the country, that still means a lot. And uh, we like to hold on to that. And we still are holding on to it. We're one <laughs> of eight blue bloods in your preview, uh, Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Nebraska, Notre Dame, USC, Michigan, and Texas. We had 63% of respondents saying yes. What does that status still mean?
5: So I've been doing Twitter with Pixix previews for about 10 years. And you see that in the off season, uh, the topics can, tend to go in the same cycles. You see the same topics come up year after year. And, and I noticed every January or February, everyone argues about who's a blue blood. Cause I'm a numbers guy too. I wanted to see how can I get a number on this? So you do, Oh, do you just do win percentage? Well, no, because there's other, uh, other factors and then wins. There's other factors. So I think a blue blood's like this. I think it's just a perception thing you pull 130,000 people like I did, you'll get 130,000 different explanations or definitions of what blue blood means to them. So um, I took to you know, the law of large numbers, just polled everybody, but basic binary yes, no questions. You know, Is Alabama a blue blood? Yes, no. Is Miami a blue blood? Yes, no. I've done the poll three years in a row now, and each year it's been the same eight blue bloods. And there's a significant gap between number eight and number nine. So there's definitely a divide there. You know, the vast majority of the college football, I guess, Twitterverse or whatever you want to call it, 130,000 votes think that these eight are the blue bloods. So, uh, and you can take from that what you'd like. I mean, I know that other programs value it. Some don't, I know it's important to Nebraska. It should be. If you couldn't tell from my Twitter, I mean, I love the tradition, the history of the sport. Uh, I guess you could call me old fashioned in that sense. Uh, so to me, this stuff matters. And I know it does to Nebraska with their sellout streak, their five national titles, their Heisman legacy and uh, you know the way they built their program so it's important yeah and I think it's a badge of honor I mean just the way that it's withstood the worst two decades of Nebraska football Mm -hmm. the way that it's still uh, nationally respected enough to be in this top eight category
0: there is a difference between being a national power and a blue blood Mm -hmm. you can be a blue blood but not be a national power at the same time that would be Nebraska's case Uh, Clemson's a national power right now and they're at 28 percent towards being a blue blood they don't have some of the history and the tradition that uh, Nebraska does. So, uh, and then you can be, a, you know, an Alabama or Ohio state and be a bit of both right now. And, and that just happens. Well, a oh, lot yeah. of, <laughs> and a lot of blue bloods have gone through what Nebraska has gone through. I would look at Oklahoma in the nineties. I would look at Alabama for a number of the years between bear Bryant and Saban yeah. that went through some of those same fluctuations Nebraska's had. Nebraska's just happened to really get hit hard for about a good 10 to 15 years in a row here. And, you know, we hit the Twitter time too. So that, mm. that made it great having social media on top of it. But, For those people that wonder why Nebraska would still be a blue blood, I guess I'd just look at what you did from 1963 to 2003, 40 straight years, and that's really what's unheard of is that kind of long-term stability, and that's what we're hoping to get back to with Trev Alberts and Scott Frost and some of those young guys and those names that mean a lot here.
2: Honestly, it surprises me, especially since it's a Twitter-based poll and Twitter is such a young uh, media that we do get ranked that high because yep. most young people haven't seen us be that good. So that really says a lot about a name recognition, the fact that that we can mm-hmm. get it. And it says a lot about how fast and hard Huskers vote online. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> yeah, We <laughs> vote early and vote off. Uh, we, so. we run a pretty good game.
5: <laughs> I think also it speaks to, to people's definition of it. I think it's really a generational thing. When you, when sure. you think of blue bloods uh, they were, they were dominant programs when your grandfather watched college football, when your dad watched college right. football. Now, when you grew up, you heard those old stories, those old war stories, right? Like, oh, back in 1970, like, you know, you grow up hearing those and it, and it kind of builds your perception. That's why, I mean, I continue to call it, it's a perception type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, for Nebraska's case, it's four decades or five of really positive memories that have been passed down. So, and for hitting your, your program's worst years ever, like Honky said, during the Twitter phase, you know, why isn't Michigan ever criticized or why isn't Texas ever mm-hmm. criticized? Uh, you know, Michigan hasn't done anything in a long time. They've been embarrassed by their rival for t- 20 years. Yeah. Uh, Texas, since the Vince young miracle hadn't, had he not had the best game any players ever had, uh, <laughs> they'd be sitting there since 1970. I think a shared title with you guys, even so everyone goes through their ups and downs, but the thing is there's a large divide after Texas number eight down to number nine Penn state. So, you know, you're, you're viewed that way and it's something to, to own and really sell as your branding. And so, yeah, I think you got to own it and really, uh. You know, use it to your advantage in this new era.
3: I mean, I I feel that because Nebraska has always been more of like a national brand as opposed to just Nebraska itself. It it just makes sense for me from an outsider, quote unquote, you know, not from Nebraska. It makes sense that Nebraska is a blue blood because they're a team that you start talking about the best teams in college football. And Nebraska will always come up, well, how are they doing right now? Even if it's somebody who doesn't follow right? They'll always be like, well, how's Nebraska these days? And, you know, that alone to me is just the answer to the question, are they a blue blood? Well, I mean, that's, that's easy enough for me. It's the
0: answer to why Nebraska's in the Big Ten right now. And let's talk about that Big Ten. And the Big Ten, you know, has a, a series of blue bloods, Ohio State, Michigan, Nebraska listed here out of the eight. When you look at the Big Ten coming into this year, as you said earlier, Brett, Ohio state dominates the East, but quite honestly, they just dominate the conference period. No one's beating them. That's the interesting thing. You were talking with the eyes on big podcast, Jeffrey, the Greek and big Kurt last week. And I think they were kind of asking about the West and there's a perception. The West isn't as good, but the reality is, you know, Ohio state's just dominating period. Yeah, No one's beating them. In fact, the last two times they've lost in conference have been to Iowa and Purdue three and four years ago. But as you look at these two divisions right now, Ohio State, they're on top of the, the East. Let's talk about the West, where Nebraska is. Right now, you have Wisconsin and Iowa on top. I can't argue that. Nope. Those are the two teams I, I guess I would put up there probably right now, too. But go through the order there in the West, and, you know, what's your, your thinking behind it, I guess?
5: Yeah, so you're right with Ohio State that uh, I think the gap has actually widened. They really are the, the top team in the conference and their division, and I don't see anyone coming close this year. Yeah, so in the West, it was really a two-team battle uh, between Wisconsin and Iowa are actually very similar in my eyes, uh, roster breakdown and position groups and coaching style, everything. So they've kind of mastered that big 10 West formula that works. Um, you know, it's power run game. It's a stingy uh, front seven and defense and it's ball control and all the buzzwords you want to use. In fact, it kind of reminds me of the old uh, Nebraska days, uh, but th- that formula works here. They know it and they've kind of perfected it. So, but yeah, between these two, uh, I went Wisconsin one and Iowa two and I think I said at the top that all 65 of these teams had different stories and different ways that the 2020 year impacted them. Wisconsin coming into 2020, there was two position groups that, uh, that I said could not get the injury bug. And that was receiver. They only had two real threats on the outsides and offensive line, which was going through kind of a a transition year, even though it's usually a stable unit. And unfortunately both of those units got crushed, uh, whether it be quarantines or injuries And you just saw the offense totally collapse. And um, I think all of that now is fixed going forward. Both uh, Danny Davis and Kendrick Pryor are back on the outsides. It'll be their usual strong offensive line. It's a five-star quarterback, Graham Mertz. Um, They're adding transfers at running back, if there even was a a controversy there at running back. But really what stands out is their defense. Uh, their, Their defensive coordinator, Jim Leonard, one of the best in the game. He actually turned down a Packers offer. Uh, he he was that, uh, that he, he loved the Wisconsin defense that much. Of course it's, it's alma mater as well, but uh, loves this specific group of players and uh, they're absolutely loaded nine starters back on defense. So they're the cream of the crop right now, Iowa, very close. Like I said, they're almost mirror images. Um, Iowa this year, a strong interior offensive line uh, led by Tyler Linderbaum and all American at center and the interior of Iowa's line. Is so important because that, that really, goes a long way in their zone blocking scheme. So th- those three are all back in the middle. Um, you know, Tyler Goodson's a proven running back. Their receiving, receiver stable has some of the most talent they've ever had. Uh, there's several targets there, several playmakers. Um, and then on defense, uh, a great back seven. It's proven. You know what you're getting with Iowa. So those were one, two for me. Uh, kind of a sizable gap down to the uh, Nebraska, Minnesota, Northwestern, and really Purdue middle tier. And this was one, this was a middle tier that I spent, weeks trying to figure out, uh, trying to find angles, trying to, you know, really decipher because all four of these, I could make the case for and against a third place finish. Um, the way I landed on it was I put Nebraska and Minnesota tie for third. So whatever you want to call that three and a half, three and a half. And then I, uh, Northwestern fifth and Purdue sixth with, of course, Illinois going through a transition year with Brett Bielema down at 7. And back to your point about the Big Ten West outlook in general, yeah, I do think it's a solid division. I don't understand the criticism nationally, maybe because they play an old-fashioned style of offense at most of these programs, um, or at least some of them. But uh, it's great coaches, it's great player development, and the recruiting profiles, they're all hitting five-year highs. So uh, I really like this division.
0: Well, let's talk about number 7, actually, in the division, because – Redcast Rob and Mac and I are going to be heading down to Champaign here in a month, and that's game number one for Nebraska. It's the most important game on the schedule. If you listen to Coach Frost and all the guys last week at Media Days, Nebraska needs to get to 1-0. and We need some momentum. That's something that just hasn't happened under the Frost era. We need some early victories and a win against a division opponent on the road to start off 1-0 and before we come back and play Buffalo and Fordham. Uh, would do a world of good for us. So tell us a little bit about Illinois. Obviously, number seven here. You know, what are we expecting with the Illini?
5: Well, never take Illinois for granted. I think Nebraska has seen this the last two times yeah. playing against them. Uh, in 2019, Illinois built this huge lead. Uh, again, as usual, we'll get to this, but it was turnovers. It was flukiness in the red zone and kind of a theme for Nebraska. But, you yeah, know, mounted a great comeback to win. Last year, not so much. Uh, this was uh, one of the worst losses of the season, I'd say, for Nebraska getting routed at home against a team like this. But anyways, for 2021, yeah, they go with Brett Bielema. Um, I mentioned that formula that works in the Big Ten West. He, of course, did that at Wisconsin. He tried to bring it to the SEC West, but uh, going up up against five stars every week, it didn't work there. So, But he's back in the Big Ten West, uh, and and that kind of coaching scheme and style really fits to their roster strengths that they currently have. It's an above-average offensive line. Uh, There are a couple options at running back. Plus, you have Peters back, Brandon Peters, a quarterback. He's um, you know, a very efficient guy. He actually had a, he looked like a hero against Nebraska last year, and and also in their top ten upset over Wisconsin the year prior. So, uh, experience there at quarterback's important. Um, you know, defense was pretty weak. I mean, it's one of defense is one of the worst in the country last year. Even with Lovey Smith, the NFL defensive guru, uh, it just didn't click here. So, yeah, I have them last place. They they have some some bright spots a, a, along the roster, but I think Nebraska gets it done and. And you're right. They they really have to because an opening loss to Illinois and not just an opening loss, but that is week zero this year. So you have the entire nation watching and and Mm -hmm. coming off of the longest offseason and weirdest season 2020. Every eyeball in America is going to be on that game. And, you know, everyone knows Nebraska. Everyone knows who Scott Frost is. you got to look not only win, but look good, I think. I mean, you want to really flex your muscle and be like, hey, look, here's the statement. Okay, all those. You know, struggled years are behind us. Here's a nice win. And, you know, Illinois isn't a ranked team or anything, but you want to look strong on that opener.
0: Yeah. Martinez has had a good career against Illinois. You go back to his freshman year in that game, and then he had, you know, a ton of yards two years ago, Mm -hmm. but it's been the nine turnovers the last two seasons, which the quarterback that played the vast majority of last year, other than the last drive when Martinez scored, Mm -hmm. McCaffrey's not there to throw interceptions anymore, and that's going to be pretty important. Let's look at the East. And, again, you have Ohio State on top. Tell us uh, the order you have there.
5: Yeah, so at the top, it was Ohio State this year. Uh, I don't like to pencil anything in ahead of time, but this one really was easy to just slate them number one. Um, You know, you talk about a program that reloads. There was questions that when Urban Meyer left, if Ryan Day would be able to sustain their high recruiting, not only has he sustained it, he's actually elevated it. Uh, they're, They're top three every year now, and the per player averages are incredible. Um, now they, they do go through some transition themselves, losing Justin Fields, losing running back, Trey Sermon, um, a couple of linemen there in the middle and some key defenders. Uh, but there's just so much to like still it's the best receiver core in the nation. Um, you know, signing multiple number one, overall receivers and two all Americans, Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson on the outsides. Um, you know, and, and we say that they're replacing Justin Fields you know, they have three, five stars that are trying to fill that void. So I think that I'd take their quarterback room against anybody's in the, Ohio, in the, in the big 10, you know, great tackles. So I, I like Ohio state to win it. Uh, there's no surprise there. Number two, maybe a surprise was Penn state. Um, I know Indiana was kind of the, the media darlings last year and, and rightfully so it was, you know, it was a historic year for them breaking a lot of old trends and everything. But uh, now that we're back here in a full off season, a full year, Penn State's a much more talented roster, let's be honest. And um, their record was a little bit misleading last year at four and five. I like their offensive coordinator move, bringing in Mike Yurcich, the old big 12 guy from uh, Oklahoma State. They're going to air the ball out and go vertical and play to their athletic advantage there. So I like Penn State two, Indiana three. So I think still strong enough to be middle tier or, or pushing towards the top, Indiana. Um, a couple All-Americans on defense, Michael Penix. I do have as my first team, all big 10 quarterback when he's healthy though he's still a health concern and has never survived the whole season so a slight question mark there and then a pretty sizable drop off all the way down to michigan at number four a number 38 overall for reference so indiana i had right near the top 25 this is almost fringe top 40 with michigan really bizarre situation over there right now um they went with the mark d'antonio musical chairs approach i like to call it where they rotated their entire staff all around to new positions. You know, you have an offensive line guy as your quarterbacks coach now, never, never coached quarterbacks before, uh, but same thing, vice versa with the tight ends coach. And You know, he's either going to look like a genius or it's going to blow up in his face and we'll see, you know, I don't know what would change at this point. I mean, he's had uh, Jim Harbaugh that is, he's had hand uh, handpicked four-star recruits, six, five quarterbacks and everything. And uh, it just hasn't clicked there. So I don't see why it would now in a, in a transition year. Uh, and then quickly here, Michigan state at fifth, they are really the, the experimental program of this transfer portal era. Um, you know, everyone's had their transfers in and out, but Michigan state, no more. I mean, no one has it like, uh, like they've done where, um, usually when a coach comes in, you see some transfers, but when Mel Tucker took over, it was like March or April of 2020. And it was all quarantine and nobody was, uh, you really couldn't transfer. So all of that held in for a whole year, a whole cycle. And then this was kind of a double transfer cycle this year. Like 40 guys out, uh, like 25 in. And, you know, it's just a whole experiment. I think there's still pretty decent roster talent there. Uh, Rutgers at six. I like what Shiano did in his first year, uh, bringing them back to respectability. They fought hard at games, really. Uh, and then Maryland seven. Look for Maryland next year, 2022. They, they're they starting to recruit well. They have a great quarterback with Tonga Bailoa, but uh, a sleeper a year from now not
3: right now did i really hear you say that michigan state had 40 kids transfer out and 25 transfer in
5: i think i might have messed that up i think it was 25 out i, I think i wrote 27 in the book so
3: i heard those numbers and i thought they like, yeah how the they were is nebraska getting crap about <laughs> transfers <Like. laughs> no, for sure. yeah i
5: think yeah. michigan state was number one in transfers out along with tennessee 27 scholarships. Maybe some of those are walk ons. Additionally, get up to my 40 number I just threw out there. But now it is 27, (laughs) uh, as of June.
0: All right. Well, let's talk a little Husker football. How about that? I think the Redcasters want to hear what what Brett thinks about Nebraska this year. Obviously, you have us tied to the third in the West. As I'm listening to you go through all the teams here, I'm going to throw out a little hypothesis. I know, you know, we've got the toughest schedule, you know, with the two teams that are in the, the playoff. And gosh, we play. On paper, names that are big, Michigan and Michigan State and Ohio State, all of our teams from the east. But, you know, as I'm thinking about this, as I look through our schedule, that in the Illinois game, we already said, shoot, got to go one and you Got to get the start. You play uh, Fordham. You play Buffalo. If we can't beat those two teams, we're in a boatload of trouble, right? We're going to go down to Oklahoma, and all I'm looking for with Oklahoma is play them hard, play good, it, football. Just play good football, good, clean football. And you come back, and you're going to play on the road, At Michigan State and you come home and you play Michigan at home. Now we can talk about this schedule being, you know, crazy tough. And can we go six and six and just make a bowl game? But I'm looking at that and realistically looking at a five and one start. If I say that, Brett, am I just honky drinking Kool-Aid? Am I being crazy? Or is that a legitimate look at the first six games, the first half of the schedule for Nebraska
2: fans? We've reached the part of the podcast where honky and Mac try to convince Brett that we <laughs> should be bumped up two <laughs> or three spots. But go ahead.
5: I like this part.
2: <laughs> now,
5: the more you're talking, I'm thinking maybe 11 and one's uh, still one. All right. That's what I'm talking on, about. Uh... We
0: can split Ohio State and Oklahoma. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah. So looking at the schedule, it is manageable to start out. I mean, you got to beat Illinois. And like you said, if you're not beating Fordham and Buffalo, You got bigger issues to deal with, so I'm thinking three and zero. I think you lose at Oklahoma. I don't. I don't. I never want to write a game off, but I do have them in my playoff, and they look loaded Mm -hmm. on both sides of the ball, and it's down there in Norman. So let's just say three and one. The key will be not letting Oklahoma beat you twice. A lot of times, when you play someone that physical or that talented, you you have a hangover the next week, and it starts to you know domino effect down the road because you got to bounce back. And that's a winnable game uh, at East Lansing against Michigan State. Like you said, it may be a a brand name, but really going through a a massive transition. So I think you got to collect and uh, go get that W out there. Northwestern is a similar example where, yeah, everyone now thinks of them as the defending Big Ten West champs, which they are. You know, I have the utmost respect for Coach Fitzgerald, what they've built there, but they go through cycles. They go through, it's a two or three year cycle. And last year was the the peak where they're senior laden. They have, you know, everything's clicking. They're winning these close games. And then it reverses back. And now it's super young next year, or what will be this year, 2021. Um, you know, the least returning production in all of FBS and all those razor-thin margins, and, and I don't want to call them fluky because it seems like a, a method they have, but all these one-score wins, they start to flip back the losses. So uh, I think Nebraska's got to beat Northwestern next year. It's at home. You've had some games where you should have beaten Northwestern statistically and haven't pulled the trigger.
3: i got to have that
5: one. And then uh, then you're talking five and one heading into what they call a helmet game, Michigan, where it's a blue blood. It's, uh, you know, all the makings of that'll be national TV that could get game day treatment, even who knows uh, Mm -hmm. the way that Michigan and Nebraska's brands pull. So, yeah, I I don't see why five and one is out of the picture. Uh, That would be indicative that the program took a next step where you're now beating the teams that on paper you should be. I mean, Mm -hmm. you should be beating Illinois consistently year in, year out, Uh, Northwestern most years rebuilding teams like Michigan State you should be beating. So, yeah, a 5-1 and one start heading into Michigan, that would be proof of concept that you're heading in the right direction.
0: Yep, and and I actually – I put Michigan at the sixth game. They are the seventh game. So, really, I have us at 6-1 and one now. So, you know, I mean, we're bowl-eligible seven games in. You see how this just kind of keeps moving along here? You Some know, years
2: you don't think you're going to get there, but by the time the season rolls around, you get there.
0: Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at Minnesota, I mean, that's more than winnable. Purdue at home. My gosh, we are – we're eight and one by the time we're, or is that nine and one by the time we're playing Ohio State? And with a bye week, I mean, geez, that's
2: probably two game no. days.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I'd also like to bring up that Brett did say that um, he saw Ohio State going 11 and one. So I was going to ask where that loss comes. And apparently, we're figuring that out now that it comes from Nebraska. So,
5: <laughs> oh man, I don't know about that far. You know, it's just the makings of a, a young Ohio State team where just like in 2014, they were very young, a new quarterback. They lost at Virginia Tech in a tough atmosphere. But then as the season goes on, this, this tends to happen with the Ohio States and Alabama. As the season goes on, all those young five stars start to get game experienced and really roll into a machine come November, December. So if you're going to catch them, catch them early. Maybe Oregon can get them, Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but back to Nebraska, the, the issue that I've had uh, doing my preview for a while now in the Big Ten West is it's kind of like a, it's kind of a puzzle to me. Everything on paper looks like Nebraska should be a contender year in and year out in this division. Uh, if you look at recruiting rankings, I mean, even program history, uh, even the stats from the year prior, my game grader, like, you come out better than your record almost every year, whether that be those penalties, those turnovers. I know we've all talked about it, mm-hmm. but really it's it's just a puzzle. I, I don't understand. So as I'm sitting here saying, oh, five and one, six and one, I don't know until I see that consistency and then really cleaning up the football and improving it. It's, it's hard to just blatantly say it. So, hey, I think that's the goal. That's where you should be but uh, they got to go prove it.
2: When you look at Nebraska from a roster standpoint, what are, what are some areas that you, have, you feel good about and some areas you have questions about?
5: Yeah, so a couple of years ago when Frost took over from the Mike Riley regime, there was obviously a lack of strength and conditioning from the Riley staff and um, a lack of player development, all the buzzwords you want to say. So the first issue was rebuild the Lions. I mean, it, it takes. it's quicker to fill a quarterback spot with a transfer or a four-star quicker to get a, a impact receiver. But to really build offensive and defensive lines and, and depth there, that takes years. Yeah. So I think finally you're starting to see that. Um, I think offensive line-wise, there's a couple of top 100 or near five-star guys as returning starters with Bryce Benhart there and Turner, Turner Corcoran. Corcoran yeah. yeah, he started the last game last year and looked like he was making some progress. So it's near five-star tackles. It's Cam Jurgens who, who I think can, can uh, continue developing at center uh, an emerging star there. Um, and then defensively, the defensive line, you finally have some guys there. You have big 10 bodies like Damian Daniels. Um, he really went to this distance against Iowa as the space eater. A couple of young guys, Casey Rogers and Ty Robinson. So I like the, the lines a little bit better than I did three years ago. Some holes, I think, are the offensive skill positions right now. And uh, I did put this in the book where it's crazy to think back, but 2021 offense in Nebraska should have had this skill room, J.D. Spielman, Wandale Robinson, Tyjon Lindsay, Marcus Fleming, and then Maurice Washington at running back alongside of Adrian Martinez, a fourth-year starter. And, yeah. and now, obviously, all those names I mentioned had different reasons and issues going on to transfer out or leave the program. But just think if you'd re- retained all that talent. I mean, we'll be talking about it, an insane arsenal of talent. Um, for whatever reason, and not to – you know, everyone has had transfers out. It just seems like it really hit that one room at Nebraska hard. And uh, now you're kind of uh, filling up, you know, plugging it with some solid transfers in their own right. But uh, until I see it, I don't know that there's firepower outsides as much as some of the other contenders.
0: Well, Brett, let's talk about that room specifically because you did Big Ten unit rankings and you have Nebraska pretty much average across the board. Uh, number six in QB, number eight in running back. Number six in offensive line, and then you have a seventh across the board on the defense, D line, linebackers, and defensive backs. But it's that wide receiver and tight end room that basically you just highlighted there that you have us eleventh. And you know, I'm not changing your mind on this right now, but this is something I would like to revisit if we do a postseason show. I think that number is going to be higher than that. Um, I don't miss Lindsay. I don't miss Spielman. I don't miss all the names you just said. Quite honestly. I'm not sure that Frost misses them in this offense right now with the way that we've transitioned to the Big Ten. We have bigger bodied receivers, and that's clear as day the route that they've gone. Omar Manning, six-four, number two Juco receiver in the country. Samari Torrey, 6'3", transferred from Montana, could have been an NFL draft guy. Oliver Martin's a small guy out of him, but he's the four-star receiver that has been at Iowa and Michigan. We have four-star six Betts, 6'3", from Bellevue, the top receiver in the state, out of the Omaha area. Believe it or not, Frost got a kid from Omaha. Yeah. I know that's a shocker because people think that doesn't happen, But and he's not even a starter right now listed. But it's not just the, the four stars of the town. It's They've made a fundamental change in how they've gone after getting skilled players to adapt to the big 10, bigger receivers. And then the tight ends part of it, Austin Allen, 6'9", 6'6", Bokalek. And then you mentioned at running back, Maurice Washington. I don't even see us going after that kind of guy anymore. I mean, we just brought in Step, the transfer from from, uh, USC, who's a 235, 240-pound guy. And and Yant, the kid that just got the scholarship, who's from Tallahassee, he's 240. Bigger guys. So I guess – that was something that Frost made a point really deeper than I've ever heard him last week at the big 10 media days, made a point to talk about how much they seem to have transitioned to the big 10. When he got here, it was famously where he said, I hope the big 10 has to adjust to us. It feels like with what they've done in recruiting, they've adjusted to the big 10.
5: Well, I think that's a good point. And another frost quote that sticks out was after the Iowa game, you just said, Hey, we got to get bigger. And I Mm -hmm. I think that was in regards to the lines, but still could Mm -hmm. apply here. Yeah. The reason I was excited, uh, right on off those names is because I I do all 65 teams and I see these names keep resurfacing. I mean, Lindsay is, uh, their star receiver at Oregon state Wondell Robinson now is like this, uh, game changing receiver Mm -hmm. for Kentucky, uh, Fleming at Maryland, I believe, Spielman at TCU. So, so anyways, they fit at their respective places, but I think you're right. If you look at the body types and the body sizes, uh, happening here, it reminds me of Iowa state where they doubled down on their size and, uh, it showed against. I think when they played Oklahoma against some undersized D backs, they really played to that advantage, that size differential. So maybe that was kind of a change in philosophy. Maybe Frost realized that, you know, having the the, the short, quick guys worked at the AAC or, or the non-AQ levels, and but wasn't going to get it done here. So maybe uh, you know traded the the speed for size. And yeah, that's a good point. I mean, just look at their body types, right? Mm -hmm.
2: And I don't really argue with the ranking either, but I do, I would say that is probably the position, those position groups have the greatest chance of improvement or being a lot higher than that, but it is a hundred percent. It's paper potential right now, you know, and even Samarituri, who's got a a resume, but that's still at a level below. And, you know, we've all been sold magic beans on transfers before, and, and sometimes they work out, but a lot of times they don't. And I'm a, I'm a wait and see type guy too, but to what you were saying before the size, the frame, the type will benefit us in the Big Ten, particularly like outside blocking with those bigger guys versus the Wandels and J.D. Spielmans. I mean, Frost first year when we were the most explosive, I felt, is when we had like a Stanley Morgan on the outside. We actually had deep threats, and, you know, Divine was hitting home run shots. We haven't had that at the running back position, or at least it hasn't been producing. If that can happen, those numbers change dramatically. But the
0: running the running game is amazing to me. Three years ago, his Frost first year, I think we were fourth in the conference in rushing offense. Two years ago, we were third in the conference – Last year, we were second in the conference. We're moving up in rushing offense. Problem was, going into the last week of the season, none of our top three rushers on the team were running
5: backs.
0: That's unbelievable. I mean, Brett, have you ever heard a stat like that where the top three rushers on a team, none of them are running back?
5: Yeah, it's incredible. I remember during one of the telecasts, they put a graphic up there that showed it. I think it was like a pie chart, and it showed you the percentage of carries and, and attempts and yards by the QBs. Or non running backs. I almost paused it and took a, a screenshot for Twitter. Uh, it's just—I'd never seen anything like it. I had to—I had to like almost proof it. I like ran over to CFB stats to see if that was real. And uh, but when you when you watch them, I guess considering Wandel Robinson was technically the receiver. I mean, yeah, right. it started to make sense. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, they hit the the transfer portal hard with Step. I mean, covering USC, he was their bruiser. He was their physical guy in short yardage. And Red Zone, which are two areas that Nebraska struggled with, especially Red Zone, you know if you get down that close, you got to get sevens and uh you know against Northwestern last year, that wasn't the case. that would have won the game yeah yep um so and I you know another guy, Gabe Irvin, I hear is is surging up the depth chart there in spring, so yeah, we'll see um wait and see approach still, but it looks like yep. uh progress being made there
0: mm-hmm. last but not least on the offense, Martinez, we've got him back here for a fourth year. Mm-hmm. I think we've said this multiple times over the course of the offseason. He can have a great season this year. He absolutely can, but we've got to get him out of being a 20-plus carry-a-game runner. That's just not what we need the starting quarterback to be. Right. And when he's had his most mistakes, it's been when he's been running the ball 20-plus times and the ball starts to get put on the ground. If we can get him into to being more of a, a traditional passer with bigger wide receivers and handing the ball off to backs mm-hmm. – You know, I think we can clean up a lot of those mistakes that that he's had if that happens. If we clean up the turnovers, if we don't have the high snaps, these are all issues that they've been addressing over and over again this entire offseason, the penalties and then special teams. Those things have absolutely – all four of those have just killed Nebraska. If those magically go away – we're going to go to magic land for a second. They magically go away. You said we were a distant third to Wisconsin and Iowa. Are we a distant third if we don't make those mistakes?
5: No, and you're not distant at all. It's just from a, pre- a preseason prognosticator mm-hmm. viewpoint, I can't just uh, assume that that would happen. Sure, or that no, would click, you know, of course not. because I haven't seen it happen yet. It's been the three mm-hmm. years under Frost, it's been Riley years. It's, I think someone tweeted out today that they've had like the nation's worst turnover margin since 2010. Uh, just this kind of stuff. I mean, what we're waiting for it to click when it does click. This team is very close to breaking out. I mean, like I said, the mm-hmm. roster talent is there on paper. So I put this in the book, too. I think the perfect example of Adrian Martinez was that Rutgers game last year, the season finale, where he played almost a perfect game. It was like 90% completion, 250 yards passing, another 150 rushing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and normally with those kind of stats, you'd think blowout. But four turnovers, mm-hmm. four times the ball was out and, uh, and placed away, giving back to Rutgers. That made it closer on the scoreboard than it should have been. Um, so extrapolate that out over the course of three years or, you know, two and a half because of injury. And that's where a lot of these games that should have been close wins or wins fell back into that margin of error and became close losses or bad losses. So until we see it now, with that said, I mean, I think, you know, fourth year senior starter, he he should be cleaning that up in terms of his injury recovery. He looked sharp in the spring game. He looked like he had that Mm -hmm. old freshman speed. I know it was non-contact, but I mean, you can't fake foot speed. So he looked Mm -hmm. fast. I guess I'm an optimist. I like to see the best in guys, and he's really shown brilliance at times. So um, mm-hmm. he can just keep that consistently great and, uh, and hold on to the ball. Yeah, for sure. It unlocks a lot of the offense.
0: All right, so great talk there on Nebraska. I think we've all settled on probably 11-1 and one or 10-2, and two, minutes, yeah. kind of depending, a couple of the, the ball rolls our way a few times, you know. 10-2 yeah. with a bullet.
2: That's what I think you said, yeah. <laughs> and, and if we do that,
0: if the college football would expand far enough, I think we could even make it this season. But uh, let's talk a little college football playoff expansion. And, Brett, I tend to fall on the side of what I know you do, which is, uh, you know, I don't know, you call me an old man yelling at the cloud, but I kind of like – the four team one, or it doesn't need to get much bigger than that, but I want to get your thoughts on it first and then we're going to let Boomer talk and Boomer has, has been a, a big proponent of expanding it. So I think this could be a little interesting, but give us your thoughts on uh, playoff expansion, the pros and cons.
5: Yeah, I know this has been a heated debate and it was kind of the storyline of the offseason until uh, Texas had other plans, but <laughs> um, you know, back to the playoff debate, I think I've always thought that four is the perfect size. Um, two wasn't really large enough. To cover some examples where you have three undefeated teams, I never want undefeated conference champ to be left out. If you're power five and you go undefeated, you should be competing for a national title. So I thought four was fine. When you start to go eight or sixteen or twelve, that's bringing two loss, three loss, even four loss teams back into title contention, uh, watering down both the regular season and the legacy of of winning a national title. uh, You know, a lot of the playoff expansionists they claim that the four team format is you know unfair or not inclusive enough. I completely disagree. I think that when the balls get kicked off in August, all 65 have the same destiny. If you're power five, win your games, you're in. Lose one, but win your conference title game, you're in. That's not 93% of the time. What I find unfair, really, is that if you allow a team that's lost twice or three times or four times to be then put uh, placed back on the equal footing in a bracket uh, in January with the undefeated team that went through and survived the gauntlet, it uh, doesn't sit well. So, and I guess on a higher level, just, you know, we can argue numbers of teams and, and selection process. I just think on a higher level where I come from it, it's okay for college football to be unique. I keep seeing people want to cram like a March Madness tournament in there or make this NFL junior. I you know let college football be unique. It's always been unique. I like it as a, a regional game where it's important still to win your conference, uh, win your region, uh, represent your region and conference in a bowl game that matters. Instead, we've had this playoff apparatus by like, you know, the national media that tells you only the playoff matters, everything else doesn't matter. And it's kind of eroded the game the last couple of years, in my opinion. So I don't want to expand that and make it even more playoff centric. Boomer,
0: I mean, you've been a proponent, obviously, of moving it, expanding it. And I think some of yours comes with a group of five being in mind. What's behind your thinking when it comes to wanting to see more expansion there?
4: Yeah, I think one of the things Brett mentioned, uh, he'd said that at the beginning of the season, you know, you got 65 teams all have the same chance to make the playoffs, which is great, but there's 129 Division I college football teams, so you're leaving out a huge chunk from the start of the season, as we've all seen. We're telling all these schools and programs and players, sorry, you do not have a chance to win a national title, and we've seen that with the way the four-team playoff is structured, that you can be as great as you are at UCF, Coastal Carolina, you name it. You can do everything you have in front of you and you still have no chance. Now, will any of those teams theoretically beat, you know, run a table in a college football playoff? Probably not. But just to come straight out and tell these programs, these players that sorry, because of where you got picked to to go to school or whoever you happen to get recruited by, that you're just not allowed to participate essentially in our postseason to win championships. That just seems to go against what the sport is supposed to be about you know we look at you know march madness i know it's you know little apples and orangey when you're talking basketball but what's most of the fun in march madness the first couple of rounds when you have all these fun little cinderella stories and fun teams you know playing out there and everyone's brackets kind of getting busted and things like that that's part of the fun of college sports where you just have all these great little stories and for some reason fbs college football just seems to never want to allow that to happen You know, we'll say everybody has the same chance to make the playoffs. We know that's even not true. If you're a Wisconsin and you lose a game in the regular season versus an Ohio State, who gets the benefit of the doubt? It's always going to be Ohio State. We've seen that happen. You know, same thing with Alabama or any of the other, you know, power teams. They're just always going to have those built-in advantages with the system we have. And I think just you've heard the arguments for the expanded playoff, that it should generate more excitement for the regular season, and it it arguably will. I mean, if you're still playing for something late in the season, have a shot at that playoff. Yeah, we're going to let some two or three, you know, lost teams in there. But you structure your playoff properly. You give the greater advantages to those, to the teams that go undefeated in the regular season, reward those. We've talked on our own podcast about the importance of having those round games at college stadiums. Keep that college feel to the game. Reward teams for doing well in the regular season. Reward the fans, which always seems to get forgotten about in everything we talk about in, in college sports these days. It can be done. We've seen it done at other levels. FCS manages to pull this off somehow. And again, people always say, well, you get the same teams winning the FCS playoffs as you do here. Fine. But if... We always say we want the best teams to win, and this is a great way to prove who the best team is. And if it happens to be the same team out of an expanded playoff, so be it.
5: Yeah, those are, those are good points. I have a couple small rebuttals and then an olive branch also. But, um, <laughs> yeah, of course, I mean, I want to bring it back. But, uh, yeah, a couple quick rebuttals. I, I do think that all 65 have a fair chance, uh, the same chance, because you mentioned Ohio State getting extra benefits. They're actually the only one, the only instance so far that was a one-loss conference champ that didn't make the playoff. Uh, ninety-three percent, fourteen out of fifteen have. They were the ones when they got blown out by Purdue. They got left out. Uh, meanwhile, remember Iowa and Michigan State, two definitely non-blue bloods, uh, had a win and in scenario in twenty fifteen. So I uh, will refute that one. To March Madness, look, I love March Madness. It's a fun weekend, like you said, it was. That's great. But tell me the last college basketball regular season game that you remember or you were excited about and sat down and watched and was a a big uh, moment for the country. And it just doesn't exist because it's just been boiled down to two weekends in March. And for better or for worse, the regular season is meaningless because you can lose 20 games and still make the tournament. But okay. So here's the, the olive branch though, to bring it back full circle. I think that we need to be able to separate the number of teams in the playoff system from the selection process, because I love four but I don't love the selection committee. I think that these are guys that are tied to the big conferences. It's behind closed doors. There's no criteria. It's very gray. Um, and yeah, there's incentive to not put these non-AQs in there because they're tied financially to the, the power league. So what I propose as an olive branch is to bring back some kind of objective measure like a BCS or like a nationwide, uh, polling system of hundred people that are not tied financially and at least are, um, their picks are public because the BCS was a lot more favorable to the non-AQs. You had TCU, and I hate to bring this example up, but 2009 when if one more second ticked off the clock, TCU would have been playing in a national uh, championship there against Alabama instead of Texas. Uh, Utah was top three or top four in 2008. Um, So I think that an objective measure like the BCS could be good, Mm -hmm. better to the non-AQs than this committee. So that's an olive branch. I, I think that I agree that the committee's uh, you know bogus and that we should have a better measure of selection and to give the non-AQs a legitimate chance somehow if they really prove it. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's the playoff spiel. I think, you know, I'm just excited to, to get actual football to talk about come August and uh, put these off-season topics behind us.
1: I think that was a really good olive branch because that's actually where I was going because, I mean, I understand some of the reasons why you'd want to stay at four, but I, I think you mentioned it is that there's a malaise essentially about the playoff, right? Like, like I mean, once I see those four teams picked again every year, I just, I don't really even care that much about the playoff right now. And so how we can figure out how to improve the postseason is, is really paramount to me. And right now it just does not work. I'd rather go back to the 90s and just have two teams picked because I don't mm-hmm. think, um, how we have it structured today works at all.
0: Well, two parts. Number one, I always want to go back to the 90s. Number two, <laughs> I propose anything that would get Brett involved with any of these committees. We have seen it with picking all American teams and being a Heisman voter, uh, Brett, you would be an excellent candidate for any of those groups. Guys, this has been a great discussion. Let's move on to the final thing that has been all over the national media here for the last week. It's with conference realignment. Obviously, this is all starting here with Oklahoma and Texas and leaving the Big 12. And as Nebraska fans, I mean, this is no shock to us. We've talked about this 10 years ago. We thought it would happen then, and it's just that it's happening now. You tweeted out a couple of really interesting things, I thought, Brett. And one of them was with Oklahoma. And you said how they've won six straight league titles. They've tied for the longest P5 streak since the 1950s. They have a playoff ticket almost every year. And now they'll be one of just seven top 10 recruiters, just a face in the crowd in a league based outside their region. For Texas, you said they were already the number one revenue program in America and the only one with their own TV channel there. They're an annual top 10 recruiter and they have zero conference titles this past decade, not even a top 50 in win percentage. What is the advantage for them moving right now?
5: Yeah, I've made it known that I do love the old traditions and the old histories and rivalries. So of course, I'm a little bit upset to see what I think will be the Big 12 dissolving. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I guess uh, Dr. Tom Osborne saw this happening 10 years ago. He knew to, he knew to get out of there. Uh, They questioned the instability of the big 12 with Texas there. And and, then they were visionaries, I guess. So it finally happened. Texas is moving out and brought Oklahoma with them. I don't understand really uh, on a program by program basis. You you hit them right there. Texas already has the revenue and Oklahoma already has the on-field success and playoff access. So I'm not sure what either gains. I think with Oklahoma now, like I said, in the tweet, they're just a face in the crowd. Now they go from being from really owning the Midwest right now and uh, owning the Big 12 to being, what, fourth in the SEC West in most years, maybe third in the SEC East most years. So uh, just a mess. So but anyway, I think on a higher level, I think maybe these two are just the the next visionaries, seeing that this thing is going to the super conference tier and there's going to be these four 16 teamers. Maybe they just know, uh, you know, one step ahead of everybody else. So I can get caught up in my tweets about, oh, the, the win percentages of Texas or Oklahoma's playoff run. But you know, maybe these two intuitively know what's coming next and are finding the most secure seat ever, uh, sec tickets. Cause of that. I mean, that league and that fan passion, the money down there, the history down there, they're never going to stop with college football. So if there is one area to join for long, long long-term stability, maybe they really uh, won the prize there, but I hate to see it go. I hate the old Mm -hmm. rivalries going away and, uh, you know, bedlam game, all the Texas schools and they get scattered across the country. It's just, uh, You know, each wave of conference realignment that we see, we move further away from the old game. So it's just uh, sad in some respects.
0: Yeah, I've got tickets to go down to Oklahoma this year, the game in Norman, the 50th anniversary of the game of the century. And exactly to your point, it's just it's you hate seeing these things lost. Now, it's what's crazy as now we're getting into like the second wave of realignment. All of a sudden, as some traditional matchups go away other ones come back now all of a sudden you have A&M in Texas again playing and this is a crazy time right now and was kind of hoping we'd be done with this 10 years ago but that's kind of fool's gold obviously you know the money's going to drive it I have to bring up one of the tweet you had and it was referencing uh Ryan Day saying you know we may wake up in five years and not recognize college football <laughs> you were like five years question mark it's already happened. Transfer portal, NIL, playoff expansion, players quit midseason, the bowl, Big 12 likely destroyed, <laughs> OU Texas, the SEC, targeting ejection, suspensions, overtime rules ruined, SEC moving to CBS, and Thursday conceded to the NFL.
5: <laughs>
3: yeah, man,
5: that was that. that one hurt the type because uh, <laughs> that one really was just getting some frustrations out of this past year. You just start to see your favorite sport, just everything you love. Now, look, some of these are probably – uh, net positives, and, and some people might like all of those changes. I'm just saying, uh, from my perspective, that in, in its entirety, um, all those taken together in such a short span were fundamentally changing the sport. Uh, for, for better or for worse, it, it is changed. So, um, yeah, it's completely unrecognizable from five years ago. So, mm-hmm. when, when Coach Ryan Day is saying, Look in 2025, no, look right now, wake up yeah. this morning and look at it now. Some of those are positives, but still, it's a completely changed game. I would just throw in really quick. You know, on the why factor, I
1: think it's probably one of the more intriguing things because it's not apparent. Because the the money, sure, it's going to be better for Oklahoma and Texas, but uh, they weren't really hurting for it. It almost seems to be a matter of self destiny, and it's it's not necessarily Oklahoma, Texas per se. It's actually the SEC. I, I do feel like this is a a warning of things to come, not just like a sixteen team four conference super thing that that, that's actually like not the solution right it's it's actually i think what sankey is doing is actually dismantling the ncaa from college football that's what ryan day is getting at in five years it is a completely different structure um potentially with completely different rules and regulations on how you actually operate as a college football program and where the money actually gets really really big is when you do cut off the dead weight, right? And that's what Oklahoma and Texas did here. And that's what is really could be the, the game changer. So there could be a lot of changes going forward that are a lot bigger than what we're even thinking about, I think.
4: Yeah, Dave, that's kind of, I know I've used this analogy, you know, with you guys in texts and stuff, and I'm sure Brett's a huge pro wrestling fan, just the way we all are in <laughs> of the <course>. Redcast. <laughs> but but <laughs> what's happening now is essentially what happened in the world of pro wrestling back in the 70s and 80s as the old territories were Basically dismantled, stabbed in the back, bought out, undercut by kind of this visionary, one of the other territories in the group, you know, the what was the WWF then and today's WWE, where you had kind of a savvy media visionary type who had a bunch of money to throw around and did whatever he wanted to do to exp- to go from little northeastern territory and expand and wipe out everybody else. Totally changed the game as we knew it. You had that overarching NWA institution, which was kind of all the little territories grouped together. And he went around that. It's akin to the NCAA. And he bought out the talent he wanted, forced other people out. Pushed a lot of people to the side, made some people a heck of a lot of money, but cost a lot of people a bunch of money as well and changed the nature of what the business was. It went away from that little regional feel that we all kind of grew up with and knew and liked and just sort of made it this national thing kind of on its own. And, you know, short term, made a lot of money long term. Was it good for the organization and the sports as it is? Remains to be seen, I guess, in college
0: football. My issue from the whole start has been with college football. We saw it last year with covid there's no centralized governance board, anything overlooking it. And I, I still can't believe that a billion dollar industry and it's up to the to conferences to run each other. And Brett, when we talked with you last year, that was the thing where it's like it was each conference was up to their their
2: own to run it
0: and i just can't believe it that, that that's how this system is set up anymore. i get i
2: get why they would run the sec i mean the sec is down to play ball i mean throughout all of it they want to play ball that's that's a conference i'd all want right. to be with honestly i mean going they never forward, flinched they never, never flinched once those guys down there are passionate about it all the big 10 show me last year was a bunch of hesitation and pansies yeah. i don't like it Well, hesitating right now would not be
0: a good thing uh, in the Big Ten's case. And there's watch us. Yeah, (laughs) you just
2: watch.
5: Maybe back to Dave's point. Maybe that really is what's at play. Maybe it's something behind the scenes where we're where we think that this is like the last step of conference realignment, but maybe it's actually really the first step of this huge other operation that we we can't even conceive yet. Something external and detached from the NCA as we know it. And maybe they're just uh, securing their seat at the table. So. Because you're right. I mean, at surface level, it doesn't make sense uh, for either of them to leave. They're perfect setups, but I don't know. We could be in for uh, something pretty crazy. So, as a traditionalist, uh, I, I liked how we had it, but I'll, I'll be open to whatever we can. I'm, you know, hey, once the ball's kicked off in August, uh, it's it's all the same. We love it. It'll be great to have the the stadium is packed again. The tailgates packed. Uh, it'll really feel like um, the return to college football that we need. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Brett, man, we can't thank you so much for doing this again here with us. Uh again Redcasters go out there go to picksixpreviews.com and uh, get yourself a digital copy of the 2021 preview. We sure always look for that
2: update where Brett changes the uh, Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> <provision>. <laughs> we an, yeah, we got an edit coming through.
1: Right. <laughs> Revisions. That's, that's the be- right. that's the
2: beauty with the digital. <laughs> exactly. You know, with yeah. it
0: being digital man, you can make changes just on the fly like that. So, you know, as we always do Brett on the redcast, you have any uh, parting shots?
5: We covered a ton of ground. This was uh, as informative and, and packed as possible. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it was great having the whole crew here. It's great to meet all of you uh, visually. We're doing we're doing the video chat for the first time here, so uh, great to meet you guys. Yeah, you bet. Uh, hopefully, it'll be someday at a, at a tailgate in Lincoln. That'd be great too. Um, but until then, yeah, good luck to Nebraska. Good luck uh, to the fans this year. Getting back to the stadiums, I think we're in for the most anticipated season uh, of a generation, at least. I mean, the way that 2020 went for everybody, uh, just to have a normal return to play and you know a full 12 game schedule the non-conference is back and just the experience of it having a band there having a packed stadium so i think we're in for something special this fall and so yeah thanks for having me uh again mutual respect what you guys do uh, you know keep it up one of the better team specific podcasts out there I, I do tune in during the year and uh during the offseason i go review so uh excellent work thanks for having me and uh we'll talk again soon all right thanks thanks take care